All right, I'm in Matthew chapter 9 today. Matthew chapter 9 today. Today's message is just a very simple question. We've said for the last three weeks that Jesus walks. Today, the fourth week, the question is, do you? Jesus walks. We all know that. But do you? Yeah. Now let's go to the Word of God. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Ah, we're in Nazareth again. That's where we were last Sunday. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Father, speak to us through the power of your word and spirit today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Story in this passage of scripture is about a man who could not walk. Yeah. Jesus could walk, but he couldn't. Wow. Yeah. So if Jesus were to say, Come and follow me, the man had no power to come and follow Jesus because he couldn't come and he couldn't follow. Wow. He was not able to walk. Yeah. The beautiful thing, though, is even though the man couldn't walk, he had friends who could. Huh. The man was not able to walk to Jesus by himself, but he had friends who were able and willing to take him to Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have those kinds of friends? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be one of those kinds of friends? The one thing the man had was a willingness to come. Had he not had a willingness to come, even if his friends wanted to take him to Jesus, he probably wouldn't have went. He had a willingness, but not an ability. There's a lot of folks that this describes. I would love to follow Jesus, but I just don't feel like I'm able to do so. I would love to obey his commandments, but I just don't feel like I'm able to do so. I would love to seek his face, but I just don't feel like I'm able to do so. And if this describes you in any way, shape, or form, this message is to you today. And if it doesn't describe you, then you're one of the friends. Which means that your job is to go find somebody that this message does. Carry them to Jesus. Now to jump into this passage a little bit deeper, this is Matthew chapter 9. What happened in Matthew chapter 8 was that he crossed the lake with his disciples and calmed the storm and, you know, after he had fed the 5,000 and then he he comes to the region of the Gadarenes where there's two demon-possessed men. Remember, Jesus was going all through the region and going synagogue to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue and he's teaching and he's healing and he's delivering people and he's doing good to all those who are oppressed by the devil because God is with him. Yeah. And when he gets to the region of the Gadarenes, he experiences something that he doesn't experience anywhere else. He does a miracle. There's two demon-possessed men, and he delivers them. And the people of the town come and beg him to leave. Jesus does good, and they say, get out. Jesus works a miracle, and they say, get out. This is too crazy. This is too weird. We're living in a day and age in which people call right wrong and wrong right. People call left right and right left. People call up, down, and down, up. These two men were demon-possessed and screaming and tearing stuff up, and the people were like, that's normal. 
Jesus comes and casts the demon out of them. They're clean and in their right mind. And the people are like, that's too weird. You need to leave. We don't need any of this Jesus stuff over here. We don't need any of this crazy stuff over here because we're living in a day and age in which sanity is perceived as craziness and crazy is perceived as norma- normality. And so when they asked Jesus to leave, what did he do? Did he argue with them? Did he fight with them? Did he correct their theology? Did he philosophize to them? Did he preach to them? Did he condemn them? Did he tell them they're all going to hell? No. He just said, okay. And he left. Did he try to take over the political system of the region? No. He just left. He never tried to convince anybody to follow him. He never tried to convince anybody to obey him. He simply presented the kingdom. Some people said, I want it. Other people said, I don't. If, he, if they said they wanted it, he said, good, come follow me. If they didn't, he said, see you later. Don't let it hit you where the good Lord split you. And so he steps into the boat. He keeps walking. And I like it says he stepped into the boat. He walked in and he walked out. But you can't say I never came. So he gets in the boat. They say, where to? He said, let's go back to Nazareth. He gets out of the boat. Apparently, he goes into somebody's home. And when they hear Jesus is in town, everybody packs the house again. Because whenever he comes to his hometown, especially, there's a bunch of hubbub. The, The carpenter's son is back. Remember, we talked about Nazareth last Sunday, that when he's in Nazareth, they just see him as Joseph's little little carpenter boy that there's this big hubbub about, but we don't think he's all that. Yeah. So we think he's novel, and we'd love to see him do some miracles here that he did in some other places, but whenever he comes to us, he won't do it. He just says some foolishness like, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. <laughs> Y'all are looking at me going, oh, look at little Jesus. He's so cute, little, little, little. Little eight ounce, six, eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. And he's like, Y'all don't get it. He's harder on the people in Nazareth than he is on the rest of the region. Have you noticed that? He's harder on the church than he is on the world. Even though the church is constantly pointing the finger at the world, going, You guys are evil, he's pointing at the church. Just read the book of Revelation, just for three chapters. I won't say any more about that. So he's going to do the same thing here in Nazareth. He's in a house, and it's packed full of people. And these four men, they have a friend who can't walk to Jesus on his own. And so they pick him up, they carry him, they bring him to Jesus. So now there's this huge crowd of people, and in front of this huge crowd of people, four friends bring in their paralyzed friend lying on a mat. Literally, in the Greek says he was cast upon a mat. And they laid him on the floor at the feet of Jesus. And now the people in the room are chomping at the bit. He's going to have to do it now. Every, now we get to see what they saw in other regions. We, heard, we just keep hearing about that he could work miracles. Well, we'll see now. We'll see. They're putting God to the test in their mind. That's how they're thinking of Jesus. We'll see. We'll see if what they say about him is true. I hear a lot of people talk that way when they're coming to church. Well, I'm coming to see if, this, if there's anything real here. I'm coming to check this thing out to see if it's... If you think you're coming to check God out, you got it twisted. Come on. God is checking you out, not the other way around. 
When we human beings think that we have the audacity to test God to see if he's actually good, to see if he's actually loving, to see if he's actually got any power, if we have it in our head, well, if God does this, then I'll believe in him. God says, no thanks. It's more the other way around. Abraham Joshua Heschel said that the modern world has replaced the biblical question, what does God require of us? For the modern question, what do we require of God? And so we've gotten it twisted. Instead of recognizing that we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior, we come to God with all of this list of stipulations going, God, if you fulfill, if you satisfy the following 27 requirements, then I will give you a very modest and mediocre faith. I will mildly believe in you and half-heartedly attempt to, to, to obey you. But here's the 27 requirements I have of you. That's how the, na- the people of Nazareth are, are thinking. So what does Jesus do? Is he going to play into their hands? Is he going to work a parlor trick for them? Nope. He flips the script. He looks at this paralyzed man and says, be of good cheer. Cheer up. That's literally what the word in the Greek means. Yeah. <laughs> I've got great news for you. Cheer up, or literally, you've got great cause to be happy right about now. Yeah. I've got the best news for you you've ever heard in the world. Be of good cheer, son. And everybody's thinking, here it comes. Stand up and your sins are forgiven you. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody in the room went, ah. Yeah. <laughs> and the religious leaders are around the back going, This man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's disappointment. You could feel the disappointment in the room. Every time I've I've reflected on this passage, I always thought that the paralyzed man was probably disappointed too. But actually, I don't think he was. I don't think he was because I believe that Jesus was speaking prophetically to him. I believe that Jesus was looking into his heart and realizing that the conviction of the Holy Spirit had been working on this man. Do you know what the highest form of blessedness is in the Old Testament? Do you know what blessedness is, first of all? Whenever you see the word blessed or blessed in the Old Testament, it refers to the highest state of human existence. There's nothing higher than blessed. You can't get no blester. (laughs) If you're blessed, that's it. You got it. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And then in case you didn't get it, verse 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. And then the psalmist says in verse 3, let me tell you why I believe this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Do you know what David is talking about? He's talking about when he was holding his sins on the inside of him and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was working on him and he felt condemned inside and he felt dirty inside and he felt tied up inside and he felt all wicked and detestable and defiled inside because the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he was actually a sinner. Then I acknowledged 
my transgressions to the, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Wow, yeah. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord yeah. and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Wow. He tells us an experience yeah. where he was all convicted until he confessed. And then he confessed to the Lord, and then the Lord forgave him. And you know what the Lord did? He took away all that condemnation and all that fear and all that sense of of being defiled inside. He removed it from him. And when David arose from that that experience of forgiveness, he said, this is the blessed life. Wow, yes. This blessed is the one who gets millions of dollars. No, 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 no. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the one who's famous. No, blessed is the one who's forgiven. David says, I'd rather be forgiven than famous any day. I'd rather be forgiven than rich. I'd rather be forgiven than successful. I'd rather be forgiven. When Jesus says, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Be happy. He's actually Alluding to Psalm 32. I'm getting ready to give you the blessedness that David talked about in Psalm 32. I'm giving you the blessedness because what nobody in the room could see was that the external paralysis of this man's feet and legs did not compare to the internal paralysis of his spirit. Because following Jesus, walking with Jesus is not about your legs and feet, if you haven't figured that out by now. If you haven't figured out in three, uh, in, in three uh, uh, sermons that when we're talking about walking with Jesus, we're not talking about waking up and going for a walk with Jesus. And a lot of people think that that's what it is. I go for a physical walk and I say, Jesus, come walk with me. And I get in my car and say, Jesus, come ride in the car. No, he's not going on a physical walk with you. No, he's not riding in the truck with you. You're paralyzed in your heart. You can't follow him. You can't follow him where his heart goes. You know where his heart goes? His heart goes straight to compassion when he sees broken people. Does your heart go with him? You know where his heart goes? When his heart sees wickedness and iniquity, his heart moves away from it. Does your heart move with him? Does your heart awaken when his heart awakes? Does your heart mourn when his heart mourns? Does your heart laugh when his heart laughs? Does your heart cry when his heart cries? You see, our hearts can't follow after him. The psalmist said, my soul follows hard after you. And hard not meaning intense. It means close. When it says make a hard right when you come, it means not an intense right. It means it's a real right turn. Close. Literally, when he says, my soul follows hard after you, he means my soul just stays right close with you. Like when you turn, my soul turns. When you walk straight, my soul walks straight. The paths of the righteousness, the paths of the righteous are like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. Those paths of the righteous are brain pathways. And you know, a lot of of believers are paralyzed and don't know it. Just as pre-believers are paralyzed and don't know it. Yeah. Or should I say a lot of believers who think they're believers are paralyzed and don't know it. Yeah. Partly because that forgiveness of sins thing is such a scandal that we want to skip right over it. 
We want to claim to be followers of Jesus who have never actually confessed and asked forgiveness for our sins. Because we don't actually think we have any. There's this new age teaching that's so prevalent in the world right now that the idea that we are born sinners is ridiculous. And that if Jesus is actually love, what he is, is eternal and universal affirmation. You know what? He does bring eternal and universal affirmation. But the way into that is to confess your sins and believe the gospel. And when we confess our sins, we discover that there is no sin so grievous that he cannot forgive it. When we come to that place, I, I just believe everyone needs at some point to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit that pricks your heart. You saw it happening in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stood up and preached to this huge crowd of people. It said, when he finished saying these things, they were cut to the heart. And said, what shall we do? And here's the beautiful thing. There are times when I can't walk to Jesus because I'm paralyzed in my heart. So what I need to do, what, what most of us do, is we sit around waiting for four friends to show up. When what we should be doing is calling our four friends. I think this man called them. I think he grabbed his cell phone and shot out a text message and said, I better not hear about y'all going to see Jesus without me. Y'all need to come get a brother. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about accountability, but a a lot of the time, the way we talk about accountability, we delegate it to others. Why'd you fall into that? Well, nobody was asking me how I'm doing. Nobody was calling me. No, 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 no. Nobody knows the secrets of your heart. Nobody knows what you're struggling with, when you're struggling with it. You have an obligation to reach for accountability. Accountability is the responsibility of every individual person. You reach for your own accountability. Don't wait for nobody to give accountability to you. Well, y'all didn't call me. Well, you didn't call us. When somebody does reach out, The mature, they respond with compassion, not condemnation. See, when someone is under conviction, the last thing they need is condemnation. When someone's under conviction, they don't need condemnation. And in fact, in the theology of Israel, if you were paralyzed or some ill had begotten you, it was because of your sin. That's what they believed. So they literally believed that either this man or his parents had sinned. That's why he was paralyzed. So when he calls and says, y'all come pick me up and bring me to Jesus. They could have said, well, you just need to get yourself right. That's the problem. You ain't right. (laughs) No condemnation. 
They just came and picked him up and took him to Jesus. If we only had friends, if we only had a church full of people who were friends, friends of the paralytic, who went around looking for people who were ready to come to Jesus but couldn't come on their own and simply said, we're here to pick you up. We're not here to condemn you. We're not here to tell you you're wrong. You already know it. Of course, that's why you want to come to Jesus. (laughs) We're not here to confront you. We're not here to correct you. We're here to support and encourage you. And they picked that man up and they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus says, and here's the, it says, when he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, not his faith, their faith. Let me give you the definition of faith that comes from this passage. Faith is bringing to Jesus what you cannot handle on your own. When he saw their faith, what faith? They, all he saw was that they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus says, that's faith. Wow. Bringing to Jesus what you cannot handle on your own is faith. Amen. Amen. That's good. You mature believers, are you ministering to anybody that you don't pray for? Wow. You're trying to handle it on your own. Wow. But when you bring them to Jesus, boom, that's faith. Yeah. Yeah. He saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven you. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe when he said that to that young man, forgiveness exploded in his heart. Wow. Amen. And he thought to himself, this is better than legs. Wow. Yeah. This is better than feet. Yeah. Wow. What David said is true because in his spirit, he got up and walked. I may not be able to walk with my feet, but now my heart can follow Jesus. Wow, yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. You see, (laughs) what Jesus did in this passage of Scripture is he gave the meaning of the miracle before the miracle. Because Jesus was sick and tired of people misunderstanding the meaning of all of his miracles. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody thought that when he heals paralyzed people, the meaning is that he would prefer people to walk than to be paralyzed. And when he opens deaf ears, the meaning is he doesn't want your ears to be deaf. He wants you to be able to hear. And when he opened blind eyes, it's because he don't like blind eyes. He likes people to be able to see. And when he sends you a financial blessing, it's because he don't like you being broke. When he helps you get a good job, it's because he wants you to have a better one. And we've completely misunderstood the meaning of the miracle. So now they're judging him going, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your heart? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And now Jesus miss. Now Jesus redefines evil. Because if I said define evil, the first thing you would start naming off is like sexual sins and smoking and drinking and chewing and going with girls who do. But Jesus defined evil as unbelief. Wow. Wow. Looking at Jesus saying, you can't do that. Wow. Wow. Jesus says, that's evil. Wow. Whenever I talk about Jesus is able to clean your thoughts, and the first thing that happens is, and people have actually told me, I, he can't clean my thoughts. Wow. That thought is evil. Wow. Wow. That if you think there's something Jesus can't cleanse, that's an evil thought. Wow. Wow. 
If you think there's something Jesus can't heal, that's an evil thought. If you think there's something Jesus can't set you free from, that's an evil thought. You're trying to fight the actual thought that you think that Jesus can't heal. You should be fighting the thought that Jesus can't heal that. Did you catch that? He redefines faith, it's coming to Jesus. And then he redefines evil, it's doubting Jesus. And then he asks this question, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and, and walk? Which is easier to say? And they looked at him the same way y'all are looking at me. Because I can see an eye, it's like, hope he don't ask me this. <laughs> I hope he's not expecting an answer because I don't know. I, I don't know. And they felt the same way. Exactly. Both of those statements are equally impossible for the average human being. But Jesus says, literally what he's saying is, you know I have the power to make people walk. You've seen that. You've heard that. I mean, that reputation preceded me into this town. If I've got the power to make people walk, don't you think I've got the power to forgive sins? If I could take away your paralysis, I can't take away your sin? I can drive demons out, but I can't drive sin out? He says, all right. I'm going to give you the interpretation of this miracle before I work it. I'm going to make this man walk so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So that when you see this miracle, it will be a sign to you he can take away sins. We missed that. We forgot that. Remember when he sent the disciples out two by two and they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them? And he says, don't rejoice about this. It's the very next chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 10, don't rejoice about the demons. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice that your sins are washed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, watch what I'm about to do here. So I'm going to give you the interpretation up front. If I can make him walk, I can take away his sins. So that whenever you see this man walking, what you're going to be reminded of from this day forward is that I am able to remove sins. Wow. Yeah. And then he looks at the man and says, take up your mat and walk. And the man jumps up. He's looking around the room. Did y'all get it? Yeah. They missed it. Yeah. It's easier to get people to believe that Jesus can heal blind eyes than it is to get them to believe that he can take away sins. So if there's one thing that most believers are missing is a revelation that your sin is gone. Yeah. I mean, it's gone. <laughs> and you know what the, the proof of that lack of revelation is? When you still walk in them. Because huh. yeah. you fall back into them and you think, I just wasn't delivered. Wow. No, you didn't get the revelation that is gone. You can't fall back into what is gone. We have more of a faith in the continuation of sin than in the power of grace. Wow. We have more faith in our ability to fall than in his power to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before his glorious presence. Wow. And because of that, because of that faith in our sins, in which we believe and then are baptized, 
because you will be baptized into whatever you believe. If you believe in the power of the continuing sin in your life, you will be baptized into that. But if you believe in the forgiving power and cleansing power that is in the name of Jesus, you will be baptized into that. And the people were in awe, it says, and praised God who gave such power to men. But they missed it. Because what they were in awe about was that a lame man walked. He said, your sins are forgiven you. Nobody blinked an eye. He said, stand up and walk. And shouting music started. Doom, 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 and they were dancing and shouting. <laughs> we see one person come to Jesus in the church and everybody goes, that was cool. But if a blind person gets healed in here, these chairs would all fall over. Everybody would get slinked at the same time. <laughs> because we marvel more in the natural than we do in the spiritual. More in the temporal than we do in the eternal. More in the fleshly than in the spiritual. Our minds are more on earthly things than on heavenly things. You know, it'd be crazy. I've only seen it one time in my life. And the person actually lost it as quickly as he got it. I saw somebody get the revelation that his sins were forgiven. You know, it's not too late to ask God for that revelation. Yeah. Are you unhappy? I, I th I th wouldn't it be crazy to think that that revelation could, could cure depression. That that revelation could take away anxiety. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. That's a more powerful miracle than raising the dead. Because you know what that revelation does? It heals your spiritual paralysis. So that suddenly you can just walk with Jesus wherever he goes. And you're not tempted to run and hide all the time because your heart is constantly condemning you. You're not tempted to, st to stay home from church because your heart condemns you. To skip community group because your heart condemns you. When your heart condemns you, I don't want to pray. I don't want to be confronted. But when that is removed and your heart does not condemn you anymore, all of a sudden you have confidence to come boldly before God. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to just have confidence to come boldly before God? And not a feigned confidence that's the arrogant ignorance of my sin. Pretending it's not there. That God doesn't care about it anymore. Let me tell you something. God cares deeply about it. His son died for it. Yes. It cost his son his life. But when he says he cares about it, it's not because he desires to condemn. But that he holds the power of forgiveness, of reconciliation of righteousness and peace. And he wants each and every one of us to live in that blessed state. Yeah. The highest 
order of human life mm. is walking in full forgiveness. Mm. Your sins washed away. What is that song? It is well with my soul. What is it? The third verse that says, my sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. It's gone. Come on, somebody. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Reuben, come back and play a little something. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you're here and you've come to set the captives free. And Lord, I'm not even doing a show of hands today because there are many of us from all walks, and in fact, I would say all of us, that need a double portion of that revelation. Yeah. Some of us haven't rejoiced in a long time. The glory of that thought, of that truth, of that revelation. There's some here that have just been battling self-condemnation all the time. Constantly condemned for that which the Lord has forgiven you. You're your own worst critic. You're beating yourself up. There's a few of you here that you're remembering stuff from your childhood and you're still feeling guilty about it. Stuff from when you were 17 or 15 years old, 12 years old even. And you can't let it go. You still feel conflicted about it. And I'm not saying it wasn't ugly and I'm not saying it wasn't wrong, but I'm saying that it was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross. And there's others that run from Jesus because of this, this point right here. If it requires me to confess that I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm just not interested in it. And maybe you spent so many years burying the condemnation of your own heart that you don't feel it anymore. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to unbury it. That that convicting work of the Holy Spirit would come, not to condemn. There's a difference between the convicting work of the Spirit and the condemnation of the enemy. The Spirit convicts so that we turn to God and are forgiven. The enemy condemns so that you feel ashamed for the rest of your life. God is not the author of shame. He's the author of repentance. His sorrow drives you to repentance, not condemnation, not shame. And some of you, you've interpreted your condemnation as repentance, as conviction. And some of you need to stop repenting because you've been repenting of the same thing for far too long. But others of you have never come to that place where your heart is truly grieved for your sin, where your bones were wasting away, where his hand was heavy upon you. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would open you up to that convicting work of the Spirit right now. Not because I want you to experience sorrow, but because I want you to experience newness of life. Lord, I pray for the revelation of your power to forgive. I pray that that revelation would release true repentance, that that repentance would flow like a mighty river, and that there would be real freedom in the house today. Real freedom in the house today. Real freedom, real freedom. Those watching online, those in SF, 
I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Jeremy and SF right now, and Pastor Anna right now. There would be real freedom. There'd be real freedom. There'd be real freedom. There'd be real freedom. Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Then I confessed my transgressions to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will acknowledge my sins to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would release forgiveness through repentance as a work of your grace activated by faith. I pray you would do it in every heart. In Jesus' mighty name.